Dublin's electricity system needs an upgrade. Our population is growing and our energy usage is too. That's why Airgrid, state-owned operator of Ireland's electricity transmission grid, is powering up Dublin. We're shaping Dublin's electricity future, upgrading underground cables to future-proof our power system and bring more renewable energy onto the grid. Find out more at airgrid.ie forward slash Dublin. Airgrid, delivering a cleaner energy future. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, rugby star Tony Ward on why ageing is a psychological struggle that ultimately we need to embrace and why we shouldn't hold back on having our health checked. The gut experts, Professor Barbara Ryan, consultant gastroenterologist and registered dietitian Elaine McGowan will join me in studio to bust some gut health myths and talk about their new book and why they decided to focus on women. And Maeve Madden is renowned for her Queen's Don't Quit community, amassing a major following online for her workouts and her honest account of body confidence. She's in town for Wellfest taking place this weekend in Dublin and she'll join me for a chat. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was a good one this week. I headed away for a few days to France and it was the ultimate switch off. A good friend of mine is doing a house swap for a year there with his family. So myself and mine flew out to a gorgeous part of the world called Annecy. It's right on a large lake and there are mountains and trees all around. It is stunning. Many of us said on the weekend, why don't people talk about this spot a little more? It's a little hidden gem. Everything there is set up for getting out in nature. There's a beautiful boardwalk and diving spots all along the lake, boats, of course, and everyone is out on bikes. In the evening, people sit along the lake, some with a drink, some with a pizza, and it's all very civilised. And I have to say, I really remarked on the slower pace of life there. There weren't any massive chains of coffee shops or convenience stores. If you got a coffee, there was just one option in a small cup with milk or without milk. And it really made me realise how caught up in the complicated we have all become, myself included. There is so much choice and it just wasn't there. And there was something really nice about that. Anyway, it was lovely to hang out, sit in the garden, take in the view, be out of our own routine and it was my first time to swim in a freshwater lake and anyone that knows me knows how much I obsess over drinking water. Before plastic became a known nemesis, a large two litre bottle of Evian was never far from my side and now I've replaced it with the refillable bottle. And for me to feel like I was swimming basically in Evian, well, it was a moment for me, let's just say that. And during the pandemic, I suppose we were all reminded what was important. And yes, the simple things are still the most important, as I've just attested to with what I witnessed in that little French town and the the slower pace and the the less choice. But I'd have to say travelling is good for the soul. It's incredible to have it back, to open up your eyes and your heart to other ways of life and be reminded of what a beautiful planet we live on is such an incredible privilege and I loved it. We do live in a beautiful country, of course, and I am looking forward to my trips booked in Ireland over the summer, but it was really good to get away too. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Maeve Madden is renowned for her Queen's Don't Quit community, amassing a major following 
online for her workouts and her honest account of body confidence. She's in town for Wellfest taking place this weekend in Dublin and she joins me on the line now. Hello Maeve. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for coming on today. No, thank you so much for having me. I'm so sorry that I uh, that we couldn't make it work to uh, be there in person. It's just been a bit of a crazy two weeks now for me. So and the struggle has been real. Is it good to be back in Ireland between living in London, lockdowns now, life in Dubai? Have you had a chance to come back that much? Yeah, we've been back loads. Um, we we're obviously back at Christmas and then we came back in February and uh and now we're back again like we're still very active um you know in Ireland and still doing lots of work here and obviously my family were here and even when I lived in London I would have come back every six to eight weeks but my parents actually think that I'm back more now because the flight is so long whenever where I do travel back I there for like weeks at a time so um so it's actually working out great and Maeve, I didn't realise that you had originally been a dancer, but that injury put stop to your career. So was that part of your Queen's Don't Quit ethos? As that must have taken some strength to build yourself back from that. Yeah, I suppose so. It was, you know, that happened. Uh, oh, my goodness. It must have been 2006 that happened. And, uh, and yeah, it was, uh, it was just an, you know, an unfortunate accident. And at the time we were going on tour, like two or three days later, and I wouldn't have made the tour, but, uh, you know, they said, oh, you know, in 12 weeks, you should be back and you should be able to, you know, to get back up on your feet again and kind of get going. And, um, but I had been dancing for quite a number of years at, at this point and so it was then I thought oh you know what maybe maybe now is the time you know maybe this is a sign that I that I go to university and I and I try and do something different and uh and then and then off I went and that's kind of you know what brought me to London and why I moved to London was for uni. And I suppose in that then fitness was always a part of your life and making fitness be something that you enjoy doing so I suppose you you had that connection in a way, from dance. Yeah, because I've danced from the age of, oh my goodness, I think three years old. And, um, you know, and I was a very competitive dancer. And I suppose as, uh, you know, as I got older, you kind of go into bigger competitions. And so I had more dance classes and dance practice. And, you know, I was constantly practicing at home. And it's funny, mom would say to me, you know, you either do your homework or you do your dancing. And of course, I always chose the dancing because I had such a passion for it. And I just loved it so much. And um, although I did do my homework as well. <laughs> but that was that was her thing. You either study or, or you do your, you know, you practice your dancing. Um, and I was so competitive and, you know, and I, and I was a very successful dancer. And, um, and so just from there, and I think that you know, that drive, um, you know, growing up. And then obviously I was in, you know, I danced with the shows. And although I was in a show, it was still very competitive because you can, you know, you can be replaced at any time and you had to be, you know, if you're dancing with Michael Flatley, you have to be one of the best dancers. You have to be, you know, very fit and very healthy. Um, And then, of course, I went to uni. And when you go to university, you know, it's inevitable. You end up, you know, going out all the time and you're not exercising and things like that. And um, I remember after like a few months, I felt horrendous. And so I joined a gym. And this was kind of like, 
So this would have been, yeah, must 2006. It wasn't such a big thing then that someone would like go to the gym, you know? And I remember I was like one of the only people at university who did that. Um, But I've just always really enjoyed sport and, um, you know, and and just really enjoyed fitness, more just training myself. And, you know, I've always been really into swimming and, and things like that. So that was what I did while I was in, you know, while I was in London. Yeah. And, and moving your body and it being something that makes you feel good rather than something that's going to to change your body. But that's also a message yeah, that you're very involved with on your mm-hmm. social media, because I think people will look at you and, and assume that you don't have body hang ups, but you're very open to say this happens to anyone and we need to to fight against it. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's what Queens Don't Quit. Um, our platform is all about like we have girls and their teenagers right up to, you know, people in their 70s who are a queen member. And for us, it's like, you know, the workouts are for everyone. And I always say to the girls, you know, and and I do, I always say girls because 99.9% of our audience and our members are female. Um, But I'm like, you know, do one rep or do all of the reps, you know, do the same reps as me or do more. Like, it's up to you. As long as you're moving your body, then, you know, then that's wonderful. And I always say like, don't don't do a workout that you don't enjoy. You know, if you're doing my workout and you're like, oh, I hate this. I literally like, please do not do this. You know, join in on the workouts that you find enjoyable. Because at the end of the day, I'm like, you're just here for movement. And I think that a lot of people, and especially social media, can focus so much on aesthetic and using exercise to change their bodies in in certain ways and that's that's not what we're about I'm like and and people don't the people then become so fixated on their appearance and I've been there and it's a very negative you know headspace to be in and they you know they become so fixated on their appearance and how they look and and like your body changes all the time from morning till night your body is constantly changing and and we very much promote that um because we want our queens to our goal is for for you to be like the best version of yourself we want you to feel so confident and so happy and love working out and so that's that's what we promote in our platform I say ours because I feel like everybody's just a part of it. So my platform, but ours in total, because it's such a huge community. And did you ever envisage it getting as big as it has? I mean, you've hundreds of thousands of followers on Instagram and, and so much traction between them, you know, sharing their story with you as as well as being on to get your sense of humor as well as your health and, and fitness tips because I suppose when you started out, I, I, I'm hearing your name popping up all the time saying you're going to be at Wellfest and they're saying, you know, health and fitness influencer. And that wasn't a job title when you started out. Yeah, no, it wasn't. And I don't know why I just decided to. Well, I do know why. Like back before I started Instagram, I was in a very negative space and, um, you know, I was very underweight and um, and I had a whole pile of body issues. And I kind of started Instagram as a way of kind of, I suppose, like, you know, sharing what I was doing to to move into like a healthier mindset and um, because I was doing this kind of like transformation from being, you know, really underweight to being strong and feeling empowered and, you know, going on this like healthy, 
you know, lifestyle journey that would, you know, change inevitably changed my life forever and and yeah I never I, I think before lockdown like it was f- funny yesterday we were actually looking at the photos of when I first did Wellfest um which I think was 2016 was the first time I did it and like all the girls that were there and who came and joined in on my workouts from you know what I had been showing on on Instagram over the over the few years and now you know and I was just on one of the little small stages. And now on Saturday, I'm kind of like opening well fast. And I, you know, I can't believe it. I'm like, this is absolutely insane how, you know, in the last five years, I've kind of grown this platform and, and grown this community of women. And, you know, they're all coming together through lockdown and through Queen's Don't Quit. Um, you know, so many people have, have made these online friends and we're doing 20, over 20 live classes a week. I'm not taking all of those classes. Um, so I take like six of these classes, but we chat to each other every single day. And, you know, it's a very safe space where these women share, you know, their, like their daily woes or last night the baby was up and I'm tired this morning and and they're encouraging each other and and speaking to each other and it's really lovely because a lot of the time people don't have anyone to talk to or you know it'll be 9 30 in the morning and someone's going to be at home the entire day by themselves you know maybe looking after their you know their children or you know a loved one or whoever it is and and so just taking that break from themselves and coming online and and speaking to another community and and because the screen is there I suppose you're you're more confident in in opening up about problems and things like that and that's what makes it so much more than just doing a live workout you know it's it's so much more for everybody well, Maeve, we wish you all the best at Wellfest um, this weekend. Have a good one. And for more information, Thank you so go. much. It's very exciting. It is. And as you say, you've come so far. People can find out more at MaeveMadden.com. Maeve, keep doing what you're doing. Thanks, Molly, and thanks for having me. Now, they say ageing is a privilege, and while this is true, often we equate feeling good with being young. And when we picture the later years, it's often punctuated with thoughts of the body breaking down and illness. Rugby star and commentator Tony Ward has faced and made peace with both, and he joins me in studio now. So, Tony, at the height of your rugby career, did you appreciate your your health and your body's ability being at the top of your game and being able to play a sport like that that you loved? In a word, no. <laughs> Sadly. Um, only in latter years when things start to break down uh, do you appreciate um, how good it is when you're on the top of your game, so to speak. So, um, no, it's been a real leveller over the last, I suppose, about 20 years. Because it's very different, wasn't it, to elite sport now. I mean, they've all got dietitians and teams and and all that around them, monitoring their health at all times. Well, what was the attitude back when you were playing? Yeah, that's a really good point because it was up to yourself to look after your own needs, um, which, which was difficult because when... I mean, the counter argument is that, you know, there was a freedom to playing back then that clearly it can't have in professional sport nowadays. And that said, it must be fantastic to have everything done for you. In other words, this generation, um, and I'm not begrudging, but they're able to maximise their potential or their ability because of exactly what you're talking about, Claire, having, you know, that sort of professional help in the background. And clearly we didn't have that. We had to try and look after ourselves as best we could. And the one thing I will say is we did 
according to the knowledge we had at that time. Because you had to, you know, it was still a very high standard, but obviously not the same as professional sport now. Well, look, you did all right. 19 caps, awards, left, right and centre. So, I mean, who knows what would have happened if you had had your own entourage. Listen, it's funny when you say that 19 caps thing, because when I have very presentations over the years, I was fine. Uh, and I, there was a lot of controversy about me and Ollie Campbell, uh, you know, in terms of caps and that. But when you look now, like guys now, they, they've 150 and 170 caps because it's so different. The point I'm making is that uh, you're almost embarrassed now when you're at some sort of, I don't know, presentation or something. And there's a couple of the pro guys there because they're in the hundreds, whereas we operate. Because you played very few games during the year. Um you also weren't allowed substitutes back then where they come on with two minutes to go now and they get a cap. So you'd make 19 caps in a year <laughs> nowadays. Yeah. yeah, well, look, that's yeah. fair. But look, 19 is better than none. Oh, and that's always been my attitude. <laughs> honestly, honestly. Did you ever think about ageing, even at milestone birthdays? No, it's funny. I didn't, you know, and um, and when, when I had a few ailments as, as they subsequently developed, um, I think that's, that's the biggest issue I had. I think it's the psychological acceptance of the aging process. I think that's a really hard thing. Like even today, sitting here with you, I think and feel, and I know people say this all the time, the same as I did when I was a teenager or like walking here today. I'm from Harold's Cross originally just up the road. I would have spent a lot of my life around here. And I'm no different. I don't think any different. But you are different. <laughs> That's the reality. And I think for men, the two biggest problems, if I'm not jumping too far ahead, Claire, I see, is that it's a societal thing that men don't really accept, whereas women do, that they need to look after themselves, that if there's something going wrong, they should get it checked. They'll, they'll stick their car in to get it serviced every so often, but they won't stick themselves in. Um, that's the, big, the the biggest issue, I think, with men in general. But with aging, it's, as I say, it's it's the acceptance of the, the physical and psychological reality that you are getting older. Um, and once you accept that, as I have, honestly, because of the things that have happened to me in the last 20 years, uh, and I'm just, I, I think I'm reasonably happy where I'm at, but it's been, uh, it's been sobering, to put it mildly. <laughs> and would you have checked in on your health or did you wait until there was an issue? I, I was reasonably okay. Now, when I say reasonably, that's relative to the way men behave in that I would have gone in about every five years. Isn't that awful? Like, and I'm saying that was reasonable, but that's the way it was. No, w- w- the issues I've had related to prostate, and thankfully I'm okay, that was about 12 years ago, and hearing. They're, they're the two really issues I've had. Um, with the prostate, it, it, for men, the obvious thing that you hear about that you, you're um, going to the loo more, you, you know, which is the obvious sign. And I found when I was away, I, I did a lot of co-commentating and stuff like that over the years with RT and BBC. And when I'd be away particularly, and you'd be killing time the day before the game, this is when it really came home to me, I'd be walking around and I'd be going looking for a shop where I go to the loo. And then I was thinking, God, I'm doing this an awful lot. More than during the night, if you know what I mean. I, I seem to be sleeping okay. And that's when it just triggered something that I better watch this. So again, there was no Googling at the time, but I did read up on it. And I was checking, well, make sure there's no blood or anything like that, which there wasn't. So I was a typical man, uh, nothing to worry about. So, And then I, I when I went in for that five-year checkup, um, I'm very lucky that my, my doctor is one of my friends through rugby, Ray Power. And when I went in to see him, it was in the Beacon, and 
he checked and he said, look, I'm worried about your PSA and I'm going to check it. And he did. And they also did the physical test as well, which is, anyway, it has to be done. And I think that's what pe- puts people off, going yeah, to get checked. I, I, I agree. They, they are, they're afraid of that. And it's nothing, you know, and that, that, that's what doctors do. And, and Well, in comparison to chemotherapy or worse. Absolutely. It's very By, by getting it in time, yeah. It's minimal. But I get it. I get yeah. it. It's uncomfortable. But as yeah. is a breast check, as is a smear test, as in, is all yeah. of, of these things. But I do understand why that's that's a tough thing to go yeah. and get checked. And yet when I look back, it was so silly in, in retrospect. But thankfully, I just about got it in time. Uh, it was at, a, at an advanced stage. The... Um, Michael Marr, the, the surgeon in the matter who, who operated on me with brachytherapy at the time, explained that it was like an orange and the juice was seeping through the skin. So it was escaping out. But luckily it hadn't gone into any other organs. So I was blessed. Um, and I had to have things done like hormone implants to kill the testosterone that is in the male, all those sort of things. Um, so it was a tough few years, you know, and I had radiotherapy treatment, obviously, over five weeks and uh, all the things that you've got to do. Um, but obviously, I, I feel better for it if that doesn't, if that's not a contradiction. And what about the psychological impact of hearing the word cancer? Yeah. How did you get yeah. your, your head around that? Well done. I'm delighted you brought that up because that was the biggest thing of all. When I was a child, that was before your time, way before, uh, or child, a teenager, I remember there was... Um, there was a film Love Story, Ryan O'Neill and Ali McGraw. It was a very famous one. You've probably never seen it. But it, it, it was a, a film of the time. And it was um, and it was just a, a gorgeous film, a feel-good film. And in it, Ali McGraw, and of course she was a pin-up. Like, she was just gorgeous. And she has, uh, she gets leukaemia in the film and she dies. And there's the scene where herself and Ryan O'Neill have to go into the doctor and across the table, like you and I now, he tells the bad news and I always wondered, it stayed with me forever. And I thought, God, how would I ever handle that? You know, if if ever, because we all dread the C word, as you said. And that's what happened after I'd been to Ray Parma. My doctor, Ray, rang me and said, look, um, there's a problem here. So I was going, as it happened to another friend of mine through rugby, through sport over the years, Hubie Gallagher, who's a urologist. And uh, I went to see Hubie and Hubie said to me, look, it, it, it is bad. You, you, we've got to get this treated immediately. And one of my daughters, I have three girls, one of my daughters came along with me uh, on the day and she was sitting beside me and I could see kind of tears welling in her eyes. And I, the one thing I said to myself now, before I went, psychological games, I guess, maybe a bit to do with sport, I said, I've got to be strong, you know, no matter what I'm told here. So, of course, I was squeezing her hand underneath the table and she was fine. And... I think that's the key, and I know it sounds very cliched, but for anybody, male or female, who has a health problem, it's all about positivity going forward. Um, and, the, you know, and I'm not a great person on the glasses half full, you know, in other ways in life. But for this, I have been. And I, again, it sounds awful, but I think I'm better for it. Yeah. That you've gone through it because it, it taught you certain things. Yeah, and, I'm, and I'd rather go through life without it. Uh, as would anybody, scot free, but it doesn't work like that. It's full of twists and turns along the way, and uh, yeah, one or two of them, and the hearing as well has been a lit. That's been that that's been more impactful, if I can put it that way, than the other, which was more life threatening. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I suppose you you got the diagnosis, you got the treatment plan, you moved on. Whereas with the hearing. It, it started to just impact your everyday life. So when did you first start to notice it? 
Oh gosh, the, the, the prostate issue was about 12 years ago, because uh, we're not now 22 now. Um, I suppose about seven or eight years ago, but, but, but I had suspicions and I've always, since the hearing issue has arisen, I've tried to look back uh, to where it might have started. And I remember um, I, I went to college in Limerick to the P College, uh, UL as it is now. And it was the NCP back then. And I was playing with a rugby team in Limerick called Gary Oll. And we went on a tour, to a lovely tour, Trinidad, Tobago and Barbados at 19 years of age. And nice. first year in college, pretty good start. <laughs> you know, it was fantastic. But I do remember on that trip that I remember my ears blowing. And it was a little or a lot stronger than, you know, the way your ears normally, you've got to hold your nose or you to, when you're yeah, on a plane. Yeah, yawn or whatever it is. And it goes. Yeah. And it goes, exactly. But something like that definitely happened back then. And of course, at that age, didn't even think about it. But always I had a problem with my ears going in the second that we took or we went above the clouds or whatever. It, it was bad. So um, that's where it may have happened. But again, and, and I'll be honest on this and hold my hands up, when I went in to finally do something about it to hidden hearing, um, and I got hearing aids and... When I initially had them, and I hate saying this, this is about five, six years ago, they were in the drawer because my, I, I don't even know if it's pride or dignity or anything like that, but I, I just thought, geez, I can't be seen with hearing aids. That's like a, what do you call it, walking around. A zimmer with a, frame. With a zimmer frame, exactly. You know, that's. that's it, it, that it aged you. Yeah. Like, which is crazy. Um, and now I couldn't, I couldn't manage without them. And I, I have to say, again, I'm lucky, if you don't mind me mentioning today, but I've ended Dooley, who really looks after me. He was audiologist of the year a few years ago. And it's great having someone you can trust in. You know, that's the, and that's what I found in a lot of the relationships I've built up with medical people, that, you know, on the ground and dealing with people, they're very, very good in a counselling sort of way, as well as, you know, doing their normal business, as it were. And I, I kind of need that relationship that I've got to have somebody who can really trust in. For, for better or worse, unfortunately, I'm a sensitive old soul. So I, I, I need that kind of, uh, how will I put it, psychological protection to know it's there from whoever I'm dealing with. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty well worked so far. And... I suppose we forget, I, I completely can understand why people don't want to get glasses for the first time or don't want to get the hearing aids because it is an acceptance that things are breaking down in some way and you're not 19 anymore. But then why do we forget that it's ageing to say, what, 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 over again? And it's actually giving you back the hearing of a of oh, a 19-year-old. Absolutely. Gosh, uh, um, because the feeling when you cannot hear anything, Claire, is just... It's the most... No, I, I, I've thought about this a lot. Hearing... The only thing I can think that would be worst, and thankfully, my sight's okay. For, I have reading glasses, but I'm okay. I can see anything MIC live there. I'm My long-term vision is quite good, thankfully, for driving and all that. I think to lose your vision, I think, would be really... And my mom did before she died. She was 90, 91, but she lost it in the last few years, and she was decimated uh, with that. Um, but I, I found hard, the hearing very hard because I hate saying to people, pardon what? And, and, and seeing their frustration at me. I'm aware of that. And I'm trying to block that out and just say, and that's where we come back to the psychological point I'm making. Look, I'm in my 60s now. I, I, I've got to accept that, you know, the, the bits wear out <laughs> and, um, and and just get on with it as best I can. So 
And I suppose technology has caught up. I mean, I can't yeah. see the hearing aids now at all. And they used to be quite a big piece of plastic That's behind right. the ear. Yeah. But now things have, have changed. Yeah. It's like I, I remember I used to do some work on Millennium Radio in, in 1988 in town. And they used to give me, uh, with RTE, this big brick, which was a mobile phone. Yeah. So I guess much like with that the is the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you were really proud of the car when you had it there, like, because nobody had a brick at the time. No, no, you're absolutely right. And I, I, it probably helps. The, the, the old hair, what's left of it, has gone grey at this stage. But the wire is grey, so that helps hide it as well. But you're right. No, they are very, very small and minute. And I think that will keep improving as well, where they'll probably reach the stage where they can just put it into the ear that they don't even need anything around the back of it. So... Look, just make the best of what technology is available and the best of where we're at in life. And that's all you can do. And is that your attitude to ageing now going forward? Yeah, honestly. Because like, there were little things that happened. When I t- retired from sport, I played football as well, soccer, um, at, a, at a reasonable level. Um, when I r- retired uh, from Active sport like that, competitive sport, for want of a better word, I found that difficult, even though I went into coaching and I was a teacher and uh, I did commentary work and all that. So I was still involved in sport, but it's not the same. Nothing compares to being out there in the middle and playing. So that was difficult to accept. And then in relation to the football, obviously rugby, because of the nature of the game, you can't play much after you retire. Tip rugby, tag rugby has come in recent times, a little bit of that. But indoor football, I used to play right up till I was about 50. Uh, And when I had to stop doing that, um, that to me was like taking out the Zimmer frame again or opening the ground and putting me under. That's how I felt. You're like, God, life's over now, which is rubbish. But (laughs) that's the way you think. Uh, And certainly that's the way I was thinking then. But now I suppose you're excited to see what comes next because you never know you're right some chapters do close but it doesn't mean the book is over no no and touch wood we're we're still hanging on well Tony Ward thank you so much for coming in and talking so openly and honestly with me I think it will resonate with a lot of people Claire absolute pleasure Professor Barbara Ryan and Elaine McGowan, RD, are The Good Experts. You'll find them at The Good Experts on social media and they're authors of What Every Woman Needs to Know About Her Gut, published by Sheldon Press and available nationwide now. Professor Barbara Ryan is a consultant gastroenterologist at Tala University Hospital in Dublin and a professor of gastroenterology at Trinity College in Dublin. Elaine McGowan is one of Ireland's leading private healthcare clinical dietitians and nutritionists and she's primarily based at the Hermitage Medical Clinic. And they both join me in studio now. Ladies, you are very welcome. Thank you very much for having us, Claire. Thank you, Claire. And we've been trying to get a meeting or have you on the show for quite some time now. But obviously, when I read your biogs, you're busy women. <laughs> We're a bit yeah. busy, yes. Uh, we've been doing this on the side, but uh, no, it's 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 great to get here finally. Yes, um, and perfectly timed mm. with the book, which we will get into. But I want to talk a little bit about gut health and mm-hmm. what it is because I don't know does it make you happy it's getting a bit of a time in the spotlight mm. everyone's talking about gut health there's a bit more awareness about it but yeah. do we really understand what it is do you think I mean I think that um I think it's wonderful that people are so much in general it's wonderful that people that there's an awareness there and that people are happy to talk about things these things because I mean you know as Irish people we haven't always been the best for talking about anything private so having people talk about their guts and their digestive system is really fantastic I think the one thing that we feel is that 
the, the whole topic of gut health has been maybe reduced down a little bit. When people talk about gut health in, in popular media, it's basically mean it basically means now having healthy gut bacteria. That's kind of what you feed, you know, you feed the healthy gut bacteria and that's your gut health. But actually, it's a lot more than that because you could be trying to, you know, you could be feeding your gut bacteria as such with with lots of healthy foods. But if you're having a lot of gut symptoms and cramps and discomfort and, you know, frequent bowel motions and dashing to the loo, you could have the healthiest bacteria in the gut in the world. But actually, you're not you're not enjoying good gut health. So I think it is more than just having good bacteria in your gut. It's also about having no symptoms, having, you know, having no bloating um, and not having any significant underlying gut condition also. Because some people, some people can take their gut health for granted if they eat a reasonably healthy diet, whereas other people with underlying medical conditions have to, really, it's a real struggle to enjoy good gut health. So if you've Irritable bowel syndrome, for example, which affects one in one in ten Irish adults, or one in ten adults in the Western world, and one in six women, because it's more common in women. Or if you've something like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, it's a big challenge for you to to enjoy good gut health. And for some people, it may require quite a lot of medication. And um, for some people, it might just involve dietary adjustment um, um, and some milder medications, and hopefully no medications at all. But I think the term gut health is a bigger one than just having healthy gut bacteria. And that's part of it, but not all of it. Yeah, it's a really important point. And, and what does good, good gut health feel like, Elaine? So I think that that's a hard one to describe because a lot of our, the patients that we see actually have gut problems. So normally it means that your bowel is functioning regularly for you. For some people, that means that they may have a bowel motion once a day. Some people, it can be once every second day, sometimes once every third day. Ideally, a bowel motion every day or every second day. Uh, Generally, where you don't have bloating, your stomach generally feels quite comfortable. It doesn't have illies in it. Also, that you don't suffer with excessive wind and that generally you have a good feeling. You don't have any illies in your gut. Yeah, I mean, really, when you're our digestive system is amazing, and all this stuff goes on in the background, and we're it's supposed to be below our level of consciousness. So I think when you've got good, good gut health, you kind of take it for granted because you're not aware of anything. It's really only sometimes when people start to develop problems, like the symptoms Elaine said, um, with bloating, discomfort, cramps, etc. It suddenly become oh, that's not normal, um, and then maybe people fo- think about it and focus on it more. But generally. You don't. We're, we shouldn't be aware of our digestive system. We should be able to get the urge to go to the bathroom and go. Okay, I need to go to the bathroom now, and be able to make your your way to the bathroom at a time that's convenient to you. So, for example, if we're sitting here in this interview, you know, one of, we're able to sit here and continue this talk. Whereas somebody with a with a gut problem might be sitting here thinking, "Oh my God, I need to get out of this room now and, and dash to the loo." And I suppose that's one of the things we see a lot is that. These problems inter when you haven't when you're not enjoying good gut health. These problems start to impact on every aspect of your life. Suddenly, apart from the anxiety of coming in for for us, say this is out of our comfort zone, coming in for an interview like this. If you have a gut problem, you're there also then worrying, oh my God, what happens if I need to go to the bathroom? If I get a cramp, if my tummy starts gurgling on the radio and it's picked up, you know. So these things affect people in terms of their professional life, their social life. Um, enjoying sports you know they're afraid to go out for a run in case they have up to dash into the undergrowth or something so I think we take it for granted when we don't have a problem but when it there is a problem there um, it impacts every single aspect of your life. And what impacts on our gut health? So there's 
it's multifactorial and definitely we always look at a holistic approach, really a whole body approach to good gut, gut health. And diet certainly plays a role. About 75% of people feel that diet affects their gut, either positively or negatively. And about 15% of people with IBS have nutritionally deplete diets. So there's several things that can impact it. So if we looked at three things from a diet point of view. So the first one would be uh, an increase in take of processed foods, takeaway foods, convenience foods. These can certainly reduce our healthy bacteria in the gut and they can cause more gut symptoms like bloating and wind and cramps because they contain a lot of resistant starch in them. So that, number one, is one thing that can affect it. Number two is the amount of fibre that we take in our diet. So we know that 80% of people in Ireland don't take enough fibre in their diet. Um, And uh, basically with people who've got gut problems um, that can cause slow bowel transit and on the other end of the spectrum those that eat slightly uh, very healthy it can call, it can be a little bit problematic. So fibre is has an integral role to play in terms of good gut health but it's very about get, very much about getting the right amount of fibre for you. It's like the Goldilocks scenario get it just right, not too little or too much. That's certainly something that the Irish population can work at is increasing their intake of fibre and getting it just right for them. Where do we get fibre from? We get fibre from uh, basically all of our uh, vegetables, salads, fruit, herbs, um, whole whole foods like uh, cereals, oats, whole grains, breads, uh, rices, uh, pastas. Um, they would get, provide us all with a good source of fibre. And within that, we have some fibres that are more fermentable than others um, and we can choose low fermentable fibres. So, for example, like vegetables, carrots, spinach, green beans, they're all well tolerated by the gut. And you can increase your fibre from those uh, foods and not have gut symptoms. Because the, the messaging is always quite simple. Whenever I have mm. a, an expert mm. in front of me, the mm. messaging is simple. Whereas the health mm. and wellness message is getting quite complicated, Confused. isn't yeah. it? About yeah. take this the, product, drink well, this yeah. drink, yeah. fermented yeah. foods, yes. you need all of these things. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that's one of, we're trying to, we feel very strongly about trying to preach uh, uh, um a message of moderation, actually. And I, I read, there's a really interesting uh, Canadian doctor and he um, goodness, I've just his name has just uh, gone from my head now. But he's I read an interesting article by him a year ago, and he said, "No one food will save you, and no one food will kill you." It's true because we're getting all these messages. Oh, all you got to do is eat, you know, more, you know, lots more fiber, and you're going to be fine. It is actually everything we do. And as Elaine said, you can have too much of a good thing as well. You can, you know, a lot of the messaging is now fiber is a wonderful food. It is a superfood. It, you know, if you increase fiber in your diet, it, it reduces the risk of type 2 diabetes, of heart disease, all these things. But then we've got people going the other direction who are eating, you know, twice as much fiber as they can tolerate. And they're getting very bloated and uncomfortable. And we're seeing a big increase in, in people with symptoms like IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, um, um, and, and because they're eating, this is the message they're getting. Oh, you just got to eat loads and loads of fiber, um, and you can have too much of a good thing. But really, it's it's a little bit of everything. And mm. and one of the other reasons we got together, not just to write the book, but to to start our sort of online platform, and um, the gut experts, was to try and give people evidence based uh, information as well, because they are there are a lot of messages. For example, one of the things that we feel very strongly about is. Um, is that so many people are unnecessarily excluding wheat and, f- and gluten from their diet. Like this, mm. There's almost a message now that wheat is bad for you. It's a bad mm. food. It's actually an ex whole grain wheat is actually an mm. excellent for- source of fibre. It adds variety to the diet. 
And really, unless you're a celiac or have an actual wheat allergy, which is very rare. Now, one in 100 Irish people is celiac. Um, but if other, if you don't have that or a, or a wheat allergy, really there's no reason to be excluding wheat from your diet. It is a healthy food. Similarly, people are getting messaging about dairy. Um, you know, oh, don't eat dairy. And, like, you know, simplistic messages, oh, milk is for babies. That's very damaging. I mean, dairy is a wonderful source of, of mm. nutrition, an f- excellent source of calcium. Um, and it's been shown, um, milk intake has been shown to reduce the, the risk of bowel cancer. And yet these foods are being demonised, particularly in social media. And what we're seeing is that people are cutting out more and more foods. So they're wheat-free, dairy-free. Next thing, they're completely vegan. And yet they're getting all these digestive symptoms mm. because this is not the right approach for them. Mm. And we very much like an inclusive diet, but it's about how much of these foods that you eat. Mm. Yeah, and um, being really awesome. careful as to yeah. where you get your information yeah. yes. from and that yeah. you, you back that up. And yeah. I'm yeah. studying at the minute to become a, a health coach, to work yes. alongside medical professionals, mm. not in any way instead mm. of. Mm. And a focus on lifestyle medicine. Mm. And they're talking about primary and secondary foods, that there are people who can be eating all the, in inverted commas, right foods, they get themselves in such a state of stress mm, and aren't absolutely. looking after the other areas yes. of their life. So I think that's a really important message too. Yeah. Mm. And also we have the, um, sorry, also very important point for gut health is actually the lifestyle component. So we have actually in our book a team's approach. So it's just, it's a diet and a lifestyle approach. And it's really important that all people with for a healthy gut and gut sufferers, that they embrace that holistic part of teams, which is exercise, alcohol intake, mental health and um, sleep. And the T is for total body and gut health. We also find that people, if they get very restrictive on their diets, they're actually so stressed about following the rules and the religion that that actually has a negative impact yeah. on their gut health. Yeah. Do you know? So um, this all, all restriction, we're very much about an inclusive diet and the diet and the lifestyle part together and really one doesn't go without the other. Yeah. I started meditation about 10 years ago and, you know, I suffer with some gut symptoms myself and I really find that if I go um, too, if I eat too much fibre, it can become problematic. But when I do a week-long retreat, it's amazing. I can really eat anything once it goes into day four of the <laughs> retreat because my gut-brain axis is so much more relaxed. Do you yeah, know? or sometimes even in the reverse, I find if you go yeah. on holiday for a week and exactly. you really let loose and you're having pizza yeah. and wine yeah. and, and whatever. Yeah. You know, again, I don't want to yeah. demonise yeah. any of those foods. Yeah. But nothing really happens and it's the lack of stress, yeah. I yeah. think, yeah. in yeah. your body. Absolutely. And I think it's really important that people bear that in mind. Mm. I want to quickly get to the book, of course. Um, I want to know, why did you focus on women with the book rather than gut health for everyone? Uh, well, basically, uh, because I'm going to let Barbara answer that, actually, because <laughs> she's uh, very much involved in the hormones and I, gut health. I, I think we did because... We're obviously we treat we treat men and we're not in any way uh, neglectful of men's gut health. But the reason we focused on this was because there are some very particular problems that affect women more than men, and also we know that hormones have a huge effect on our on our gut function. Many women um, with even if you don't have a digestive problem, many women will notice when they're during their menstrua- years of menstruation that the gut function. Uh, varies over the course of the month. So people might find they get a little bit constipated relatively in the week before their period. Then their period starts and they start, the bowel motions become a bit freer. They make a little bit of diarrhea. So our gut is very sensitive to hormonal changes and that that really affects um, uh, affects us during our fertile years, affects us during pregnancy. A lot of women get uh, notice they get constipated, they get reflux during pregnancy. 
And this is not just due to the fact that we have a baby growing in our tummies. It's also due to the, the hormonal effects of the, the hormones of pregnancy on, on gut function. Similarly, during perimenopause and menopause, a lot of women would notice changes in their gut function. Um, and also um, after menopause. And also women tend to get problems with their pelvic floor if they've had babies. Um, and, and, and they sometimes only become evident after they go through menopause when all our muscles get a little bit weaker. So there are all these really important hormonal events that occur over a woman's lifetime that don't happen to men and that do affect a, a woman's, uh, a woman's you know, digestive system. And also the fact really that irritable bowel syndrome, which is one of the focuses of the book, not the only focus, um, that's much more common. It's about two and a half to three times more common in women than men. So that's seven out of every 10 people with IBS are women. Um, and IBS is incredibly common. So, and our hormones have an effect on that. So we thought it would be really nice um, to have a book particularly focused on women um, uh, and, and to address all of these particular issues as best we can. Yeah, um, and maybe there'll be a man's book next year. Well, that, that may well be on the cards. <laughs> Elaine doesn't look happy about that prospect. <laughs> the book is called What Every Woman Needs to Know About Her Gut, The Flat Gut Diet Plan, Solutions for Bloating, IBS and Digestive Problems. The Gut Experts, Professor Barbara Ryan and and Elaine McGowan, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you very much, Claire. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer, Aidan McKelvey, to Simon Keane and to Jojo Cordoza, who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.